Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the constancy of the speed of light. With me is Dr. Edward Close, a physicist. He is the author of Transcendental Physics. He is also co-author with Dr. Vernon Nepi of Reality Begins with Consciousness. And in addition, he has just recently published an, in an anthology a large new chapter, and the title of the chapter is The Mathematical Unification of Space-Time, Matter, Energy, and Consciousness. And the anthology is titled, Is Consciousness Primary?, edited by Gary Schwartz and Marjorie Woolicott. Welcome, Ed. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about it. It's a pleasure to be with you as well. You know, when I was a child and first hearing about Einstein's theory of relativity, the, the sort of standard uh, phrase that was mouthed in those years was, there may be only 12 people in the world who understand yeah, yeah. Uh, the theory of relativity. And, of course, the constancy of the speed of light is crucial to that theory, is it not? Yes, yes, it is. It's uh, it's a very central uh, concept in it. And I can remember reading somewhere where somebody even said to uh, Albert Einstein that uh, it was said that only uh, two or three people in the world understood uh, relativity. Einstein was not a, uh, an egotistical person at all. He's very humble. But he did say, uh, who's the other one? <laughs> because it goes against all common sense when we talk about speed, yes. like like with automobiles. If if I'm approaching your car at, and I'm going sixty miles an hour, and you're going sixty miles an hour, the distance between the two cars is uh, varies at one hundred twenty miles an hour. You add the speed. Yes, yes, we call that addition of velocity. Velocity vectors, uh-huh. and uh, everything seems to obey that. Uh, the difference, I think, is in that. For one thing, to start with, is that the speed of light is so incredibly uh, large, uh, one hundred eighty-six thousand seven hundred two hundred seventy-two miles per second, that it's almost unfathomable. And uh, there's even some suggestion. Now, the, the, you mentioned the constancy of the speed of light. There's some misunderstanding about that, in my opinion, because uh, what is meant by the constancy of the speed of light is a very interesting thing. And that is that um, it will be the same from a given source, regardless of the motion of the observer. Mm-hmm. So... You could have a light source, and it can be moving itself, too. Uh, and you could have, say, two people. Uh, you can imagine this best maybe on spaceships or something mm-hmm. like that, where they're traveling through space, and there's a third, two, two spaceships, and there's a third one that's sending a beam of light. Even though those 
objects, those spaceships, are all traveling relative to each other at, at maybe very high velocities, when any one of them measures the speed of light coming from that object, it will always be the same in space. Um, uh, the constancy uh, doesn't relate to the fact that light moves more slowly through a different medium like mm -hmm. water. So uh, we have to say that it's, the speed of light is constant in in space. If there's no nothing that uh, is uh, uh, hampering its movement. Yet my understanding is that in water or glass or something, if the speed of light changes, it's yes. because it's bouncing around. It's it's zigzagging, so to speak. Well, and it's even separated uh, out like in a, in a prism, mm -hmm. uh, different uh, colors because they have a different wavelength. Yeah. Will will be slowed down some more than the others, and there'll be uh, uh, so yeah. So the speed of light being constant. Now there's another another point that's worth mentioning, and that it's very possible that the, this constant speed of light is actually changing over time, mm -hmm. in the sense that maybe if it was measured very accurately, say in 1800. It might be slightly different than it is now in 2019, mm -hmm. and there's some evidence that it's actually been slowing down over time uh, when they go back and take the data from some of the earliest studies. And uh, if it were just measurement error, you could say, well, we're, we're, our technology's better now. We just define it more exactly now. But if that were the case, then if we plot this data, it would all be uh, a scattergram around the actual value. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we find. We find that it all uh, is shifted upward in the past. Yeah. That's a good indication that it was actually faster. So, in in the sense of time of uh, the speed of light and time, it may not be constant over time. But going back to to the original uh, example that I used of two cars coming at each other, each at sixty miles an hour. If I'm riding a beam of light and someone else is riding a beam of light coming toward me, and I try to measure how fast it's coming, it won't measure twice the speed of light just because we're each moving at the speed of light. Is, is, am I correct about That's that? That's exactly correct. The, the, uh, the speed of, of, <clears throat> of light um, is constant means that whoever measures it wherever will get the same value at that point. Mm. In time. So the, the principle of the addition of velocities does not apply. It doesn't apply, and uh, that's very uh, um, against common thought. Yeah. You, you think, well, that doesn't. But what Einstein did is that uh, this was this was pretty well suspected and known before his time. But, uh, in fact, the, um, the, some of the equations that he worked out were actually worked out by scientists before him. But he looked a little deeper into the subject than people before him had and said, what's happening here is a, um, a shortening of, of time, a dilation of time, and a... Uh, a shortening of space. 
So this was the new idea that to explain why this was the case, it was because uh, space and time, as we measure them, was being affected by our motion uh, relative to each other and the speed of light. Now, we normally don't notice that because most of our velocities are, compared to the speed of light, are minuscule. Mm -hmm. They're uh, very much, a very teeny tiny fracture. But if you get even to a tenth of the speed of light, then it starts to come into play. And if you get up to eight or ten or nine-tenths of the speed of light, then the change is very noticeable. And that's the uh, Lorentz contraction equations that, that are used in the special theory of relativity to show how that actually works. So the implication being that, let's say, I'm riding on a light beam, mm-hmm. uh, and I look at my watch, the watch won't move. Time has stopped completely at the speed of light. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a way of looking at it, that uh, mass goes to infinity and time goes to zero at the speed of light. So from the point of view of a, a, a photon, if you think of it that way, uh, there is no such thing as time. It's all happening right now, you could say. Well, and that's, that's a real puzzler because let's suppose I'm a theoretical space traveler and I realize that because I have a lot of mass, I, I probably can't ever travel at the speed of light. Right. But I could approach it. Right. And um, it, it would suggest that I might be able to travel uh, from one end of the known universe to the other uh, from an observer on Earth, that process could take 13.8 billion years. Yeah. But for me, uh, riding on the speed of light, it would, in effect, be instantaneous. Yeah, that's that's a way of thinking. And that is kind of mind-boggling because it goes against uh, everything we experience. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, in describing what we experience with respect to light, uh, it seems to be instantaneous because of the limitations of our um, our physical organs of perception. Mm-hmm. Um, another way, another um, uh, I think common misconception about this is that. Um, that that you hear sometimes among people will say, well, Einstein proved everything's relative. And, uh, of course, Einstein would roll over in his grave because he was basically a determinist. Mm -hmm. He basically believed that we, if we can ask a question, we can find an answer for it. And uh, certainly not everything is relative. Uh, even uh, the relative view of reality from people uh, traveling at high velocities relative to the speed of light is all, with the equations that he developed, is all very predictable and uh, and can be calculated down to a, a very accurate level of exactly so. In that sense, uh, things aren't relative. It's just that the uh, uh, appearance of things is relative to our 
uh, mass and our motion. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about the constancy of the speed of light, yes, uh, that's the opposite of relative. Yes, it is. It is, because then it's an absolute value. There are a number of constants in physics, the mm-hmm. speed of light, the fine structure constant. We've talked uh, in our conversations about the Kabibo angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are about, I don't know, a handful of constants like this, and I hear uh, people question, you know, why are these constants fixed at exactly that level? Why is the speed of light precisely, as, as you indicated, 186,000, some 277.33 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> miles per second? Yeah. Is there a, any reason why it should be at that value? Yes, uh, and the answer to that is in that simple little equation, A equals mc squared. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a wonderful equation because if you think about it, it contains all of the primary variables that describe the physical universe. This is Einstein's most famous equation, equation. probably the most famous equation in all of physics. Yes, yes, and... Uh, I would say, like most things that are as profound as that, it's not entirely understood by anybody yet. And uh, one of the things you can derive from it just by doing mathematical manipulations is to solve it for C, for the speed of light, and you'll notice that when you do that, it's equal to the square root of mass over energy. Well, this means that the speed of light is determined by the ratio of mass to energy. So if we live in a universe where entropy is increasing, which is what physics and physics tells us, then that ratio is actually changing over time, and that's another reason there is a mathematical demonstration of why the speed of light may have been different uh, 10,000 years ago or 13 million years ago, than it is now and may be different in another uh, thousand years or so mm-hmm. than it is right now. In, in, in other words, the ratio of mass and energy in the entire universe is what determines the speed, the speed of, of light. light. Yes. Now, you have to bring uh, quantum physics into this, too, because when you said the entire universe, I have to put a, uh, a caveat on that and say that um, we realize now that uh, matter and energy are quantized and that everything is quantized when you start trying to describe it mathematically so that things don't um, increase in or decrease infinitesimally. So if we are thinking of going moving through uh, the cosmos, through the universe, uh, at great distances, then at, at some point, now, uh, if you're thinking in terms of infinitesimals, you say, well, the effect is always there, but it just gets very, so very small that we don't notice it. Mm. So let's say like, we're talking about gravitation. If we get far away from, enough of, far away from the Earth, we have no weight. We still have the same mass, but we have no weight. But, uh, Actually, if things are quantized, that means that at some point there's only one quantum of effect. And if you go one step farther, one Planck unit maybe, or at least one quantum unit of distance, 
It's a zero. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing in between. It doesn't go infinitesimally. So there may be parts of the physical universe that are unrelated to us in the sense that it's beyond reach because of quantification. Now, matter is and energy are convertible into each other. And I yes. imagine, you know, given explosions of stars and collisions of galaxies, the, the ratio of matter to energy in the universe must always be varying somewhat. Yes, you would expect that. And if, uh, if you um, accept the idea that uh, entropy is always increasing, in other words, disorder, in other words, the universe is now running down. You know, I, I, I have several problems with the uh, the current ideas that at least are out there about the creation and destruction of the universe. Uh, uh, for years, people thought maybe that it expanded to a certain point and then collapsed back in on itself and so forth. Now the evidence seems to be that the expansion is even speeding up. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to think that this uh, is something that appears that way because of our limited ability to perceive and that, in fact, it's kind of like the concept. I, I remember Einstein said one time, in a discussion with uh, some one of his friends that uh, somebody said, well, nothing can travel, nothing travels faster than the speed of light. And he said, no, what relativity tells us is nothing can be accelerated past the speed of light. There could be other things traveling superliminal speeds. We just would not be aware of them. They could be in the same space where we are. Mm-hmm. But we would be totally unaware of them because we're limited to... Like a parallel universe. Yeah, it could be like a parallel universe or an even an encompassing universe. Mm-hmm. Where where the speed of light, or, or let's just say that there are particles and waves, all of which move faster than our known speed of light. Right. Maybe it's two times our speed of light. Maybe there's another universe going on that's three times or mm-hmm. four times. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that could be perfectly possible. The problem with those sorts of things, uh, and it it uh, it uh, hampers uh, theoretical physics, in that you can come up with logical explanations of how things might work like that, but then if you say, "But there's no connection," we can never be aware of it. Then we can't experience it then as far as we're concerned, in our reality, in our universe, it's the same as if it didn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Well, well, there's a lot of speculation in physics, to my knowledge, of things like particles that travel backwards through time. Yeah. I, I think uh, some physicists have speculated they also move faster than the speed of light. Yeah, there there are theories in order to explain quantum effects, which uh, um, I like to say that quantum weirdness is is not uh, caused by reality; it's caused by the uh, pr- the uh, incompleteness or the problems with our 
our theories about They're gravity. weird because we think they're weird. We think they're weird. <laughs> the universe itself probably is, to the extent yeah. that it thinks at all, is probably thinking this is normal. Yeah, <laughs> the universe has no problem with it. It all works together. So yeah. the, the, the paradoxes and the conflicts are in our model, not in... We, we tend to confuse the map with reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, there, and there are some good things about that, because if you have a good map, then you can make some uh, conclusions about the reality, and you can go there and find that they actually are there. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a map of the state of, of New Mexico, and it says something is at a certain place, you can go there and find it. Uh, <clears throat> you can actually fi- also find things that aren't on the map. Yeah. So the map and the reality are not the same thing. And we forget that sometimes, especially, I think, as theoretical physicists. And uh, I suppose, culturally speaking, most people are still working with the map that's based on the work of Isaac Newton, where basically, intuitively, most people are Newtonians. Yes. uh, uh, Our experience, our limited experience, and I like to think of the senses as as reduction valves. Mm-hmm. We, uh, our physical uh, anatomy, the brain and the nervous system, are not capable, they're not constructed at this point in time, anyway, to be able to handle all of... We, we're in a... We're awash in a sea of energy. We only see a, sli- a tiny slit yeah. of electromagnetic radiation. We only hear a tiny fraction of vibrational uh, sound, and we only feel uh, all of it is very limited so mm-hmm. that it can be brought together in, uh, in our sensorium, in our internal in energy. Uh, eventually, all of this has to come to consciousness. If it doesn't come to consciousness somewhere, then it's meaningless data. This is what causes people who divorce science from conscious experience to say the more we know about reality, the more meaningless it becomes. Well, it's meaningless as long as it's only matter, energy, time, and space, because then it's data. But data, it only becomes information when consciousness is involved. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's uh, an important point to remember and a way to to uh, make the distinction between the map and, and the reality mm-hmm. and not fall into the trap of thinking the map is reality. Well, now let's come back to the speed of uh, light again. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm traveling on a light beam at the speed of light going this way. Someone's coming toward me at the speed of light mm-hmm. this way. So we're both moving at the speed of light. And yet, the and I measure the mm-hmm. velocity of the person uh, coming towards me or, or the shortening of the distance between us. Right. And that distance is only being shortened by the speed of light, not twice the speed of light. How do you explain that? Yes. Uh, that's where... <clears throat> That's why you have to go to a a uh, model of dimensionality. That's exactly why you get into like in uh, Doctor Neppy and I. Our model is nine dimensional, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> the reason you have to bring in other dimensions 
and I, I'm, I'm very explicit by what I mean by dimension, and I, I, I explain a little bit because that word is used in all kinds of ways. Anything, any variable sometimes can be called a dimension, and it is by even scientists. Mm-hmm. But in, in a model of reality, if you're trying to model reality, a dimension is only something that can may be measured in variables of extent. Extent in space. Yes, in, in space or time. Mm-hmm. Because or consciousness. You could call any variable like color a, a, a parameter. Or you could call it a dimension. dimension. And has been. Uh-huh. But in, in speaking about our model, mm-hmm. the TDVP model, yeah. which we, we defined in the last time, the triadic, uh, dimensional vortical paradigm. Yes. Uh, in, in talking about our model, when we say distinction, we don't mean just a variable. We mean a, something that can be measured in a variable of extent. And that includes time, space, and consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so now how does that help explain the fact that the, ah. the, the two light beams coming at each other are not, uh, the distance is not being diminished by twice the speed of light, but only by one time the speed of light? This is where the, uh, this is another way, as we, we approached in the last talk about yeah. how consciousness might be involved with the manifestation of reality. Mm-hmm. This is another way we can get to that same conclusion because what's happening is that space and time are measured relative to the individual that is measuring them, mm-hmm. and there's no such thing as an absolute space and time. And this is, I, I, I don't like using the word counterintuitive because I have great respect for something called intuition. But it's a head-scratcher. <laughs> but, yeah, it is because intuitively, mm-hmm. based on our experience through yeah. our uh, reduced reduction valve uh, because there are two, two different ways of thinking about the word intuition, I think. And, and yes. one is the habits that we form. Yes. Through our experience, we think of that as intuition because we form judgments without even having to think about it. Right. But the other way you're using the word intuition is sort of a, a deep knowledge that comes from a profound source within ourselves, which is uh, some people describe it as inerrant, that some deep yes. place within us ha- has a grasp of the truth of things. Yes, I've, I've seen evidence of that, I can say, as a scientist, that uh, intuition, it's like all the words we've been talking about. It's used in many different ways. And when we say it's counterintuitive, we say we mean that it, it, it doesn't seem like what we think of should be. Yeah. But the intuition that, that we're talking about, the deeper intuition, is... Uh, a form of memory, in my opinion. Now, this may may uh, puzzle some people, but let's think of intuition as a memory of the future. Uh, if time is something different, and all of this, all of this gets to this, all of this business that the consciousness is involved, and that time and space are different as measured by different people. Uh, different observers because of their relative motion 
and and the the whole picture from each one they're all different as again your your friend uh, Michael Talbot said this suggests that time and space are something entirely different than we normally think of them as yep. being so this is why it, it's counterintuitive mm-hmm. we think of time and space as a backdrop that just exists and everything happens within it but in reality what relativity is telling us is that's not true the time and space are relative to the observer mm-hmm. and to the observer's view of things. And so if time is something different than we experience, uh, something that comes out of the mathematics of TDVP or the, ma- or the quantum mathematics that I call the calculus of dimensional distinctions is that time, like space, has to be three-dimensional. And uh, there are some mathematical reasons for concluding that. But what does that mean? When I first said this to somebody, it's, oh, yeah, that's past, present, and future. No, no, that's not what I mean. Past, present, and future just describes one timeline. Yeah. So that's really just one-dimensional time. Mm-hmm. And actually, in our perception, we don't even see the time dimension. We only see a quantum uh, piece of time. So the idea of three dimensions of time is completely counterintuitive in, in yes. the first sense of the word intuition that we yeah. use. goes against all our habits. But now, if time is actually, in reality, three-dimensional, and we only do not realize that because of the limitations of our organs of perception, but uh, the reality is out there, then uh, uh, we can actually conceptualize this by thinking about space dimensions and transferring that concept to time. If, if time is three-dimensional the same way space is, then a timeline, which I, our, again, our uh, TDVP with uh, the calculus of dimensional distinctions tells us that that's created by the action of a conscious individual, uh, that action being the drawing of distinctions making something distinct from everything else gives it a reality in our mind, in our consciousness. And as we draw distinctions, and I'm going back to an earlier uh, thing, if consciousness is involved and particles and things like that don't exist until they're observed, mm-hmm. the Copenhagen interpretation and uh, extension of that, then... We create a timeline, and we're only aware of, a, of one, we, we like to say one point, but in yeah. a quantized universe, it'd be one quantum of time. Yeah. That's all we're aware of at the given instant. There's only now in our mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. We project the idea of the future and the past because of what? Memory. Now, let's suppose memory could be uh, expanded, and there are different types of memory to the point where we become consciousness of, let's say, first two dimensions of time. So now time becomes like a plane, making the analogy with space. And then we could, we could see the timelines of individuals 
Because if you draw two lines, you can, if those two lines are parallel, let's say, mm-hmm. then you can actually define a plane within which those two lines exist. It, it's sort of hard to conceive of, like go go to six o'clock and make a right turn. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's again because of the limit our limitations because uh-huh. uh, time and, and there are even hints of that with our own world in that. Because the world is is a sphere and it, it's turning and spinning, if we have the different time zones and yeah. it's already tomorrow in in Romania, mm. you know, and uh, uh, so it's a little confusing. Uh, but if we step back and say, let's suppose that we had the capability that our our consciousness was expanded to the point where we were aware of this time plane, then we could actually see the future a bit. The memory then, the memory is, is let's call it facts or information that is stored in your consciousness. Then there's a memory of this whole line, and it doesn't make any difference and from that point of view, whether it's future or, or past. It's there. Uh, now, it even gets weirder than that, in a sense, in that uh, we talked about the uh, double-slit dislayed choice experiment, in that we found out that we could not even say certain, certain things about the past. And this gets back to our friend John Wheeler again, said, the past is not made up of, uh, of, some, of an iron thing that, that exists, mm-hmm. There actually, it only exists as what we can remember or say about events in the past. Quantum physics has told us that these, uh, that the particles that we think of as moving, like make up the individual bodies of the of the observers in the picture that you painted of people traveling toward each other at high rates of speed. That these none of these actually exist until they exist in consciousness, and this is a way of explaining the double slit experiment and the delayed choice experiment, uh, which are also counterintuitive in the mm-hmm. sense that we were talking about. So when you when you see that oh there's a bigger reality out there than we're capable of knowing about, then you can start to visualize a two dimensional space or even a three-dimensional space because I mean time three-dimensional time because in order to see a plane you have to be in the third dimension mm-hmm. this is a uh, what I call uh, an invariant uh, characteristic of dimensionality you cannot be aware of a and I'll bring in a term uh, uh, domain Again, in this context, domain means a dimensional uh, region or space. So a portion of a three-dimensional space is a domain. You cannot be aware of a three-dimensional domain unless in some way you're in a fourth-dimensional domain so you can look at it. Mm. So in reality, people say, well, we only experience three dimensions. Not true. We experience five dimensions because we experience, we can conceive of the three dimensions of space. We have a dimension of consciousness, 
this gets to the idea of consciousness being measurable Mm -hmm. in the same way that space and time are. Uh, we have a, an awareness of a dimension of consciousness, at least one dimension, because that's our consciousness yeah. as an individual. And we have uh, an awareness of, of one dimension or one um, quantum of time. So we've got three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, and one dimension of consciousness. Yeah. So the average person is actually aware of five dimensions if, if he's a conscious person. Well, wouldn't wouldn't it also imply that since you've now described five dimensions, that you're actually looking at those five from a sixth? Yes. It implies that they can't exist in a way that you can conceive of or of a way that you can be aware of. That's consciousness. What con- People say, well, that's awareness. No, awareness is what consciousness does. Mm-hmm. And you can be aware of uh, of. X number of dimensions if you have your consciousness exists in a way that there is an extra one. This is this is what I call dimensional extrapolation. In, I mean, in psychology, we use the term metacognition, yeah, which is a way of you know sort of seeing whatever you're doing right now from a larger perspective. A larger perspective. But but I don't think that's normally thought of as a larger perspective, meaning an additional dimension of space, right? No, and our model, that is exactly the difference. Mm-hmm. And that is that these domains exist because as we become more and more aware, we're, we're more aware of a, a, a larger domain and a larger number. Uh, and uh, I would even maintain that it's possible and that there are have been and are individuals who are aware of of a larger number of dimensions, mm-hmm. just the way we're aware of those five uh, of of three and parts of two more. They're aware of the whole thing. So in that way, you could explain a person like uh, um, I don't know a Buddha or mm-hmm. uh, or someone who can see another person's timeline. Mm-hmm. This could explain an individual, and uh, this thing is, uh, consciousness is such that individuals can develop certain parts of their consciousness more than other parts. So you could have an individual who would seem to be uh, clairvoyant or tele- telepathic or have some sort of psychic Ability and this, I bring this in because this is the beauty of TDVP. It brings these phenomena, which we do experience and which have been um, verified through experimental evidence by people like uh, like Dr. Schwartz and others mm-hmm. who are working at and Dean Radin is a good example at Ions. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people are showing that hey, these things are real. Now they may not be uh, something that all of us have access to, but it's a difference mm-hmm. in the level or the uh, uh, the uh, amount of expansion of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So a, a person expanded consciousness, and I bring, I bring in the term that I call cosmic consciousness, would be someone who is in alignment and is aware of all the different dimensions and domains that make up reality. This sort of person would be 
an amazing person to be around because he would, just by looking at you, he would be aware of your past, your present, and your future. For convenience, call such a person a clairvoyant. Yeah. It may not be the best term, but it, it's it, what you seem to be suggesting is because they have expanded their consciousness to additional dimensions of consciousness yeah. that gives them access, perhaps, to these invisible dimensions of time and the yeah. ability to see things that are uh, inaccessible uh, to other people. Well, this brings up another concept that's important in my view, mm-hmm. and that is the nested, I would call it, quality of dimensionality. Mm-hmm. If you think about the three dimensions of space, uh, one dimension <clears throat> is a line, the way we think of it. Uh, zero dimensions is a, is a mathematical singularity, in other words, a point. Mm-hmm. Now, in a, in a quantum world, there's no such thing. It would be a quantum of space, not... Yeah. Very, very tiny, but not yeah. zero. Right. But if you think about it, then, a one-dimensional domain, if you like, is a line, mm-hmm. and there are an infinite number of zero-dimensional domains in that line. Mm-hmm. If you go expand to the next level, the two-dimensional domain, there are are an infinite number of one-dimensional domains in the two-dimensional mm-hmm. domain. In a plane, an infinite in plane. number of lines in, in a, a plane. plane. And if you extend to the third dimension, there are an infinite number of planes in a, a solid. volumetric. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, extending that on, this is dimensional extrapolation, into the fourth dimension, which is time, the first dimension of time is the fourth dimension, and that means that when we think in terms of time, it's much more subtle than the dimensions of space. But when we think in terms of time, then we're already encompassing the three dimensions of space. So I would maintain that this invariance continues on, as I say, like dimensional extrapolation, so that it's like the Russian dolls. All of these domains are embedded within mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And if your consciousness is expanded to the point where you have awareness of nine dimensions, you also have awareness of all the dimensions that are contained within it. Yeah. Now, as I've said before, there are individuals who may have expanded some of their ability. And this, let me put the idea of um, senses the sense organs and so forth, and psi abilities, like the ability to do remote viewing, let's say, into this context. Um, uh, An individual may develop one of these abilities that what what a um, uh, fully enlightened being would be one who has all of them Mm -hmm. and has developed all of them. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be individuals who might be able to look at you and tell you things about your past that you wouldn't, they wouldn't have any way of knowing in the normal sense of the word. Well, I think it's fair to say we can make a distinction between a fully enlightened being, if if such a thing exists, as opposed to a clairvoyant, a talented yes. clairvoyant. They're not identical. They're not identical. Um, this is one, if you go to the Eastern traditions of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, um, you're talking 
uh, about a satguru, a guru or a teacher who has reached some level of enlightenment that's far beyond the average person. And I would say that ability is just like intelligence or athletic ability or anything else. At a given point in time, there's a distribution so that uh, individuals, some will fall in the, in the aver- at the average or the medium, and others will be out on the tails, one or the other. Mm-hmm. And as, uh, I guess this is a, um, an optimistic view of reality, as this evolves, as this progresses, uh, we learn from our experiences and we grow and I would maintain that we grow spiritually and that spiritual evolution is actually the driving force behind uh, physical evolution or any other kind of change. You seem to be suggesting that these paradoxes of relating to the speed of light and other paradoxes in physics are, are sort of, they function like Zen koans and, mm-hmm. and they force us in confronting them as as scientists and philosophers to actually modify our own consciousness. Yes, I believe that. And uh, at one of the uh, Toward a Science of Consciousness meetings in Tucson in uh, 1996, I believe, I bumped into, in the meeting, I uh, bumped into a, a well-known physicist, and I asked him, I said, have you started meditating yet? And he looked at me as if I was from outer space and said, no, why should I? Uh, Well, my answer, I didn't have a chance to answer at that time, but my answer would be the scientist of the future will not only develop his abilities to understand intellectually, he will develop his abilities to understand beyond that and expand his consciousness. So in order to do that, uh, a scientist should be practicing meditation techniques and things like this which expand the consciousness because that's the only way he'll escape the box of materialism. Well, Dr. Edward Close, you've sort of outlined our next topic <laughs> right right there because I know you are a, a deep practitioner of meditation and, and yoga and I think that will be a perfect topic for our next interview but for now i want to thank you so much for for your time and your experience and knowledge and for being here in albuquerque with me it's a real pleasure thank you i'm enjoying it immensely and thank you for being with us (laughs) 